morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. You do sound under the weather. Good morning. Try it again. Third time, maybe. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, it's better. Spreading your germs over one another. It's great to be here with you, um, as always, and thank you to Nathan for the invitation, uh, the kind remarks, and looking forward to sharing with you this morning and what the Lord has to say. I do believe I have a message from the Lord, and we look forward as he ministers to us. Isn't that right? I want you to turn to two passages of Scripture, please. First of all, Judges chapter 19, Judges 19, and then um, Luke chapter 1. Okay, so if you get the, the two of them open, that'll help. So Judges 19 and Luke chapter 1. And I dare say that some of you may have never read this passage of Scripture in Judges 19. Um, just to say, if, if it was film classified, it would be an R rated. Just to give you that heads up before go, if anybody has to leave, that's all right. Um, it's quite graphic, and it depicts the state of the nation of God's people at this particular time. And God doesn't cover things up. Find that from Scripture. Uh, we see warts and all, the heroes of the faith are there, but we also see their shortfall, their shortcomings. We see the nation of God's people very often, Israel and Judah, the way they really are before God. And the wonder of God's grace is how he continues to persevere with them in his mercy. So we're going to read this passage of Scripture um, and then Luke chapter 1. But let me say, I'm going to be speaking this morning on redeeming Eve redeeming Eve. And before I say anything, I want to say this to the leadership in the church, okay? I'm not in any form or shape trying to address whatever you believe about the role of women in ministry, okay? I just want that to be clear and out there in case uh, I get into trouble. Having said that, if what I have to share this morning informs your view on women, I'll be very, very happy. Okay, so you interpret that how you will, um, and I'm very happy to get into trouble for what Scripture says. Let's read together. Verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servants and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. 
So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave his father-in-law, the woman's father said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early in the morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But, unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let us stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gabeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gabeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gabeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gabeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, just in case you missed that. He came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? And he answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't, do, don't be so vile, since this man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay the concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done 
not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. And if you want to keep a marker in that passage of Scripture, we'll be referring to it and go to Luke 1, as I said. Verse 26. We're familiar with this passage just after Christmas time. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with that passage of Scripture, but um, I'm sure if you haven't read it or you haven't read it much, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, it may have been reminiscent of Genesis 19. And if you don't know what that is, let let me tell you, it's about how uh, a similar thing took place where Lot and his family went into a house to stay overnight in the city of Sodom. And the men of that city, it says the old and the young men, came and also wanted to have sexual relationship with the angels that came into that house. And um, it's incredible to think of these things, but we live in a very similar age today. The, The stories are almost identical until you look at the finer details. And I suppose one of the major differences between this story in Judges 19 and Genesis 19 is that we're not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. We're talking about an Israelite town. We're talking about a place called Gibeah. We're talking about a place where the Benjamite tribe settled. We're talking about God's people. And then we're also talking about a Levite. And the Levite essentially was a member of the clergy in in these times. He, He was meant to be a spiritual leader. And here we see him, well, I mean, when we even look at his behavior in his father-in-law's house, he just likes eating and drinking and partying a bit, you know. He has a concubine, um, which wasn't his wife, and it wasn't really the way a, a spiritual leader should behave, and a concubine was just a woman for sex. We read at the beginning of chapter 19, in those days Israel had no king, and, and if you were to go back to chapter 8 and verse 20, it says there that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what we are seeing is a moral and spiritual breakdown completely across the nation. And these are God's people. 
Now, this passage is horrendous on many levels. But for me, over, over the Advent season, as I was meditating on this Scripture, the thing that stood out to me more than anything was what was implicit rather than explicit. There's a lot of explicit stuff. But in the midst of all the graphic and horrific descriptions that we read this morning, what stands out for me the most, though it is implicit, is the abuse, the misuse, the total and utter disregard for this woman concubine, and indeed for women. And there is a principle here, I believe, that when a nation is far from God, women very often are the casualties, women and children. And we only have to look to certain nations in the world today, certain cultures, um, the continent of Africa, the Middle East, the way women are treated, the lack of liberties for women. They, they may not be able to vote if there even is voting. Um, certainly, we see it in, in their clothing, um, how they're covered from head to foot in black, their features veiled. And I'm not hitting against other cultures, but these are religious and cultural aspects that effectively are an attempt to airbrush women out of the society, or at least keep them in the shadows. Probably one of the most heinous practices um, that we see, particularly on the continent of Africa, but also in the Middle East, is FGM, if you know what that is, female genital mutilation. Um, women are sexually mutilated in their sexual organs, and this can happen to children at the age of five. And there's around 28 nations in the continent of Africa that practice this. And the diaspora that goes all over the world tend to practice it in the countries that they move to, even our own United Kingdom and Ireland. This is happening. And there's some wonderful charities, some of them Christian, some of them not, trying to get this stamped out. We read a passage like Judges 19 and we think, oh, that was terrible what happened in those days. Waking up. This is the world in which we live. And if you think that in our Western supposed liberal uh, culture that we're beyond this, and it's just other kind of cultures that come in uh, with this type of mentality, think again. Because in fact, we'll take transgenderism, for instance. We're hitting all the buttons this morning. But take transgenderism. There's an interesting debate happening between feminists, lesbians, and the transgender community, because they're at loggerheads, because effectively what trans transgenderism wants to do is obliterate the female sex as distinct and unique, and gender as fluid. You can be whatever you want to be, really. And there's no such a thing as objective, absolute male and female. Now, that portrays itself as great liberty and sexual rights. But what it's actually doing is it's trying to airbrush women out of society. That's why many feminists are rising up against it. And take abortion. And the irony is that largely a great deal of feminism has championed 
so-called women's rights to have an abortion, when in fact what abortion does is it attacks the very core and heart of what femininity and motherhood is. Now, I'm not saying you're less than a, a woman if you haven't had a child, but we'd all have to agree that generally speaking, one of the greatest things that a woman can do is bring life into the world through childbirth. So we are living in a world that still attacks women. Unless you think the church gets off the hook, (laughs) we have a lot of guilt when it comes to how we have treated women over the years. Religion in general, but the church of Jesus Christ must take responsibility for how it has and still treats women in our midst. We have our own ways of airbrushing women out of the picture. And I'll leave you to work that one out for yourself. A Jewish father in the morning would have prayed a prayer like this. I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a woman, and I'm not a slave. Every day. Every day, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm a Jew, that I'm not a woman, I am a man, and that I'm free, I'm not a slave. And the chilling part of this story in Judges 19 for me, there's many aspects of it that are mind-boggling, but it's the feigned or the faux moral high ground that this Levite appears to take over the state that Israel has gotten into, over the terrible behavior of the men uh, of Gabeah, his outrage. Maybe it isn't feigned as such. Maybe it's hypocritical. Well, it certainly is. The blindness that these men have in their moral outrage to the predicament of this poor woman in their midst. They were blind to how low they were behaving towards this woman. And they're caught in their own hypocrisy. I would encourage you to read this passage again when you get a a, a bit of time because you'll not get the full sense of it. But I want you to observe when you're reading it once more the the matter-of-fact way that this girl is spoken of, even in the narrative. That's not a mistake. It is this implicit abuse of women, the misogyny that was in the society at that time. There's no emotion attached to her predicament at all. And the utter coldness when she, she's crawled to the threshold of the door by morning and he shouts for her to come quickly if she's even alive. And he opens the door and finds her lying there, and he just steps over her and says, come on. Of course, she's dead. It is utterly appalling, isn't it? And yet we come to the New Testament, right? The New Covenant And the contrast is staggering. What might be almost as staggering is many still haven't seen the contrast. 
Look at Luke 1 again, verse 28. See the difference in the annunciation, the greeting of the angel to Mary. He says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Let that sink in. The Lord is with you. Then down to verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, bear with me, and I know there's a lot to think about here, but sadly I think a lot of us, even as Christians, don't want to think. (laughs) We've got lazy in our thinking, and we just read Scripture and just believe, and we just celebrate sometimes things we don't really understand, and we can't understand it all, of course. But it's important to put your brain in gear. Think about these things. Now, I'm going to give you a proposal here, and um, I believe in the virgin birth, okay, just so as you know this. I believe in the conception and the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, okay, and I believe it had to be to fulfill Scripture, all right? But I'm talking now theoretically here, okay? Bear with me. Theoretically, did God have to bring Messiah into the world via the virgin birth. Now, of course, biblically he had to, but I'm going way, way back here, even before the Bible was written, even before God had bound himself to prophecies of Isaiah 7 and 9 and so on. Do you understand? Does he have to do it that way? I mean, God can do anything, can't he? He can do whatever he likes. He's written the script. So, let me propose to you I wonder why he didn't decide he would provide the egg in Mary's womb. Why didn't he do it like that, supernaturally? And why didn't he provide the egg and whatever fertilized of the Holy Spirit, the egg? Why didn't he provide both? Or why didn't he just cause Jesus to appear out of nowhere? You say, oh, but he had to be flesh. Yeah, well, he, well, he caused Adam just to appear out, out of the soil of the ground. So why didn't God just do that? And he took the woman f- from the rib. Why didn't God do something? I mean, who would have thought anything like that? And that's not the way people are reproduced now. But, but he did it at the beginning, just to bring something out of nothing for, for a human being's creation. Why is it that God, in his sovereign divine wisdom chose to bring Messiah into the world through the womb of a virgin using a human egg. Yes, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, but it was a human egg, nevertheless, in the womb of a teenager. Why was Christ born of a woman? And there's so much discussion there, isn't it? And I'll leave you to work out the harder things. But the point for me in the light of Judges 19 and in the light of history, isn't it incredible that the despised and rejected woman, the lowest of the low, becomes the vehicle. And indeed, her very human nature 
is part of the ingredient for the Savior of the world to enter the human race. Now, we're on holy ground. But this is amazing to me. And it's wonderful. I'm reminded of the carol, God of God, light of light, though he abhors not the virgin womb, very God, begotten, not created. This is many things, but one of the things this is, is the redemption of womanhood. It's the redeeming Eve. And this really thrilled me. Preachers love this when things pop out of Scripture that they hadn't planned even when they decided where they were going. It it blessed me when I realized that the concubine in Judges 19 was from where? Did you read it? Bethlehem. Judah. And now God in the new covenant is redeeming womanhood, redeeming Eve through a little girl from Bethlehem, Judah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, isn't it the prophecy? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, lo, you're small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Redeeming Eve. And it's the fulfillment of that prophecy right at the very beginning at the fall in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you. God is addressing the serpent, Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers. And he, that is his off, your offspring, he, the Messiah, will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. There's a slide going to go up on the screen here, hopefully, of a painting that I put up on social media to, to uh, kind of entice you all as to what I was going to speak on this morning. And it, it's a, a painting by a woman called Grace Remington, and um, it's called Mary and Eve. And if you look at it, if you can see it on the left, you've got Eve in earthen colors in her garments. And you see there... That's a bit better. You see her there with the fruit of the tree in her hand. But she is reaching out and touching uh, Mary's bump. This is Mary on the right in traditional blue and white, the heavenly color of blue. But she is holding the fruit of the curse, but she's touching effectively the child of promise. And if you go right to the bottom of that picture, hope I'm not in the way, You'll see how the serpent is woven around Eve's leg, but the head of the serpent is being crushed beneath Mary's foot because her offspring would crush Satan's head. Isn't that beautiful? It's a wonderful painting. The redemption of womanhood. And I know it's through Christ, but the woman was the vessel. I mean, I don't want to go too far on this, but, you know, There is a man who is sitting in heaven right now. And his humanity was derived from a woman who was sinful. 
How radical is this? How radical for God of all heaven, the creator of the universe, to confine himself to the catalyst of a woman's womb. It is staggering. And it's just like God to do a thing like this. In fact, if you go to look where we were in chapter to this time and move on the next chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 you see the annunciation to the, uh, the shepherds and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified now I don't know whether you know that shepherds were despised. They were lowest of the class. They weren't even probably considered class at all. They were outcasts. And these are the first people that God and all heaven announces the coming of Messiah into the world too. (laughs) The greatest announcement in history made to the lowest in society. We live, just in case you didn't know it if you're a Christian, we live in an upside-down kingdom. It's totally different in the kingdom of this world. Heaven opened over the shepherds, literally. And the angelic hosts sang. And heaven opened over womanhood in the conception of the blessed Savior in the Virgin Mary's womb, highly favored. For a woman to hear those words, you are highly favored of God. You have found grace. You have found favor. Do not be afraid. I hope you're getting this message. Especially if you're a woman. But if you're a man, you need to hear this. You know what we need to do? We need to reread the New Testament, the New Covenant, and see the prominent place that the kingdom of God gives to women. I haven't time to go into this. But... Do you know that it was women who were last at the cross of Jesus when all the men had scarpered, bar John, the beloved? It was women who stayed to the very end. It was women who tended the body of Jesus. Do you know that it was women who were first to the empty tomb on Easter morning? And do you know that it was women who announced the resurrection of Jesus to the men? And effectively what God is doing there by sending the woman to testify of the good news is he's making them the first evangelists. That's what he's doing. I mean, look at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew's purpose, of course, is the gospel to the Jews is to show that Jesus is in the line of David and he's related to Abraham. He's a pure Jew, but he's also the, 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 the son of David. He's Messiah, which, which Christ had to be the son of David. But within his genealogies, there are four, four, let's say, reasonably disreputable women 
By the way, women never featured in genealogies at all. So the fact that there's women there at all is novel. But these women are Tamar. If you know anything about her, there's several Tamars in Scripture. In Genesis, we read that she was the daughter-in-law of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. And her first two husbands died because God struck them down for sin. I'm not going into all the details, but it's a mess if you read about it. And what needed to happen was the Leverite law of marriage was that if there was any other brothers of her previous husbands, they had to be married to her to raise up ch- children to her, her, her deceased husband. And that was the law of the land. And Judah had other sons, but he made the excuse that one of them was too young to give to her, so she would have to wait until he was old enough. And really what he's trying to do is get out of it. And Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. And Judah, who had been widowed, picked her up one day, slept with her. And she kept some trinkets that he had given her, and she shamed him by, by exposing him. And it was not just the shame of his infidelity and, and immorality. It was the shame that he had not provided for her through the Leverite marriage. She is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And then there's Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. You know, in Jericho, the ones that the spies stayed with, and she was saved, of course, and she was redeemed. She is in the the line of Jesus Christ. And then there's Ruth. And there's no immorality at all in Ruth's life. But she was a Moabite, so she was Gentile. She was an outcast. And she's in the lineage of David and of Christ. And then there's this, this allusion to a woman, the wife of Uriah. That's all she's called, the wife of Uriah. Do you know who that is? Bathsheba, who King David committed adultery with. And she is in the line of Christ. Her child is in the line of Christ. Tamar's child is in the line of Christ. Now, what else is this? But not only the redemption of sinful humanity, that there are sinners in the human line of Christ, but it is the redemption of womanhood. Come with me, I'm nearly finished. Acts chapter 16, you don't have to look at it. You don't have to turn there. Let me give you the stories that are in it. You've got the story of Lydia, a businesswoman, seller of purple, You've got the story of a slave girl who's possessed with a spirit of divination, and you've got the story of a Philippian jailer who's about to kill himself, and he gets saved and his family. I thank you, God, says the Jewish father, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And you get all three. In Acts chapter 16. And then we've got Paul's, well, what you might say is his conclusion on the matter. In Galatians 3.28, if you want to turn to that one, you can. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. Listen, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, 
for you're all one in Christ. There is no... We're not saying there aren't differences between the sexes. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying there's not differences in some jobs that are to be done in the family. I'm not saying that. Women have the babies. You know, I appreciate that big style, okay? But what we're saying is... Well, here's what I'm saying. I've had to repent in regards to my attitude towards women. And I think the church has to. And you can hammer out, you know, the whole rule thing. I'm not getting into that with you. But all I'm saying is we've got to be honest with what Scripture actually says. And we need to make sure that we as the church are not still oppressing women. And I want to say to you here this morning, if you're a woman, you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? And everything that is available to a man, everything in the kingdom of God is available to you. I'm not talking about what, a, you know, you understand? I have my views, you might have your views, but all I'm saying is we believe in the priesthood of all believers, and that includes male and female. Females in the kingdom of God are priests as much as males. In other words, they can offer up sacrifices of praise and offering to God just the way men can. Men, how are we treating women? How do we treat our wives? What about the slave trade, the modern-day slave trade, human trafficking, which has a, a very big overlap into the world of pornography? that a lot of men in the church are bound by. How are we honoring women? Jeez, isn't it? Let's pray. Now, I'm going to do a bit of ministry here. I've been ministering through the Word. I'm going to do a bit of ministry in prayer. Okay? My time's probably gone. If you are a woman who has been abused and misused, can I say something? There is grace, there is wholeness, and there is healing in the gospel of Jesus. There is a place for you. And you don't have to hide your identity. You don't have to deny who you are or what, what you have to bring. And there's healing for you at the cross. I mean that. Will you come this morning and will you let the Lord Jesus bring healing deep, deep within you? Deep within you. If you're a woman who has been overlooked in your spiritual gifts, or again, I will use the word abused by the church, I'm not talking about this church, but abused by the church, hindered, restricted, sinned against. I want to say to you from the heart of God, you're not a second-class citizen, and God has gifted you, and God wants you to exercise those gifts. And you're not a rebel. You're not a witch. Whatever's been said over you. Now, I'm not encouraging rebelliousness in women or men. 
There must be mutual submission. First to God and one another, whether we're male or female, in Christ. But if you're genuinely gifted of God, and God has an anointing and a calling commission on you, you need to hear this. You need to get the job done. You need to fulfill your ministry and your calling, whatever that is. And men, we have a huge responsibility here. How we relate to women, how we treat women. And maybe we need to repent in some areas where we have sinned against women, our wives, our daughters. Isn't it wonderful? The message of Pentecost is, and it was Joel too, remember, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your young men, your old men, your old women and your daughters. I'll pour out my spirit on them and they will prophesy. Isn't it a wonderful message of grace that we have too? Grace. And listen, whatever your sin is, whatever your predicament, whatever your brokenness, isn't it wonderful that there's grace greater than all our sin? What a message. Father, we thank you. And I just pray that the emancipation of the Messiah's mandate would come upon people in this place, that liberty and freedom and healing through the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for the redemption of womanhood. We thank you that you have redeemed Eve. And I pray for each woman in particular in this place. I want to pronounce over you in your womanhood, in all that you are in Christ, in your identity, you are highly favored. Do not fear. You have found favor with God. (laughs) You're in. And you're not second class, and you don't have to wait in the queue behind. Thank you, Jesus. Would you release women in the place today, Lord? Release them from words that have been spoken over them, from false teaching that they've submitted to. Release them in Jesus' name and set them free to worship you and to serve you and to lead. And I'm going to say something. I believe that the next move of God is going to be largely led by women. Do with that whatever you like, but I believe that and have believed it now for some time. That women will lead the charge. Let's face it, they've been doing it for years in prayer. And so, Father, we pray that you will raise up mighty women. And where the men aren't rising up, that you'll raise up women. And that the women will teach the men how to do a thing or two by example. And that it might shame the men into movement and into action. But that we might move together as one. For we are all one in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.